this is part three uh, of the control failure. Uh, this control is actually quite diversified in terms of uh, it can lead to many different sub-risk disciplines. So the, the control failure and also the risk we want to highlight for FTX was due to the size of the company, it was growing rapidly. From all the public information so far, um, it seems to be the network of very small individual, compromised individual, uh, I would say, that they have um, access, right, uh, to develop the codes. So that means FTX itself, there was a limited number of developers building the code. As you can see from the news and all the public articles that says it's mainly two developer. One is Nishat Singh and one is Gary Wang. These are the two top developers. So it's the CTO and the head of engineering. They apparently they de developed more than 80 to 90% of the code for uh, Alameda and also for FTX. So that means from a risk point of view, it's very highlighted they are the key person risk. Uh, key person risk could have many implications of uh, how, how you take it. Because key person risk is from tradition, traditional finance, there is could lead to inadequate of resource. That's one thing that we can dive in a little bit deeper uh, later on. It could uh, means that the kind of segregation of duties that in, in a very traditional finance, um, traditional form is one person doing everything. So there's kind of no controls or lack of controls. One of the stuff for big banks they have if they develop anything and also uh, maybe small, medium-sized company, they also have, they will have uh, a QA. That means quality assurance. So there will be some form of tester they will perform the test. So if you think of it, this FTX is mainly developed by two engineers. So you could see how much testing or how much validation they, they've been doing may be lacking or, or adequate. And when we say uh, access rights, uh, security duties, these guys will have full admin rights. So that means they will have all the code source, everything um, that will lead them to this major backdoor uh, access that they created that no one knows because obviously the, the fair number of small small uh, risks of people uh, yeah, using this platform or building this code. And also there's contingency risks. So for, for example, contingency is if these two people got knocked off by the bus, is there anyone be able to fill their places? There's no one, no expert of how the code and source. It may take some time to rebuild all the code, uh, sources. So, I mean, there's a whole pack of information we want to share with you. And what is the good standard operational model for uh, a traditional finance if they would uh, to mitigate this particular risk? So let me just pause here for, for a second and I, and I let a uh, uh, partner left to, to chime in in terms of his view from a traditional finance of all the controls and what could be a gold star 
uh, medal uh, if we put these in place for uh, future uh, crypto exchange. Let me pause there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Robbie, for your uh, great uh, introduction of uh, this kind of controls regarding uh, the FTX incident. And actually, to echo some of the key points you mentioned, uh, for example, uh, regarding the key person's risk, regarding the two main engineers, because if they are gone or they are doing something wrong, there will be a problem to firm. But actually in traditional finance, let's say, for example, we, we will have some kind of uh, insurance contracts to cover some so-called key person's risk or sometimes we, we have a kind of uh, director's obligation duties, that kind of uh, insurance. So usually the approach will be uh, approaching some insurance brokers to contact some general insurance companies, big companies, to see uh, what kind of uh, coverage they can offer so that there are some insurance policies set up to protect the firm in case if there are any bad thing happens, for example, some directors or some key persons doing something wrong uh, for the companies. So there will be some coverage uh, at least from uh, insurance companies, of course. And also for the crypto firms, of course, nowadays there are some other uh, insurance companies will cover the digital assets firms so that in case, because there are common cases, some crypto assets will be stolen or hacked so that you will lose your own firm's uh, crypto assets or even some of your client's assets. So for that case, this kind of insurance companies is a kind of uh, coverage for these laws. And basically, this kind of requirement was set, for example, in local Hong Kong SFC regulators for a new licensed uh, uh, virtual asset trading platform. So that's the expectation of regulators, I believe, uh, around the key jurisdictions uh, promoting crypto. And also uh, regarding the another point mentioned by Robbie about the quality assurance for some kind of UAT for the coding for the engineer. I, I think I, I could refer to that to some of my experience in the past in traditional bank. For example, yeah, so if, when, when, yeah. you okay. uh, when you mentioned uh... Just, just one jump in. When you mention UAT, I don't think people will understand the UAT. Oh, sorry. yeah, yeah. Uh, UAT means user acceptance uh, testing. So that means when people, uh, before they launch code, they need to practice this, this, uh, perform this UAT test. UAT is basically doing sample tests, making sure the design is, uh, according to to the function itself, and. And if there's any kind of issues, folks, they will fix it. So normally they wouldn't need to pass a number of UAT testing. There's dedicated roles and uh, responsibility for a tester. They project manage these tests and make making sure it's independent from 
from the coders. Uh, obviously, there's no back doors, right? So, so, so hence the the UAT test is very important. Uh, I'm in most banks and in most companies, they will have dedicated role. So it's a fully paid role uh, of assigned person to do this job. Uh, yep. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think is uh important this kind of uh UAT testing. We have a proper documentation of what have been tested during the UAT process, so that uh the key risk in the production environment supposedly could be uh mostly covered in a UAT process, and also some of the time. For some bigger banks, they have some kind of uh, uh, first line of defense role uh, that is maybe uh, a, a control role you can think of that they, they will have some additional uh, control monitoring for this kind of uh, UAT test. You, you can see a poll, you can see it as a post UAT. Uh, control monitoring to to validate whether this kind of UAT uh met the uh company's policy for doing a UAT, whether there are sufficient documentation for, for this kind of things. And it's important because I witnessed uh one of my previous employers that uh sometimes some operational risk incidents happens of course as uh it, it was so called related to it but actually it was more related to the uh human error or, or human mistake that the uat tester when they test the case may not uh we uh align to the policy and even there are something happen in the production, they will not uh reference to what the results in the UAT. So so that means the production environment results a lot aligned with the UAT results. So some problems will pop up if the production environment uh uh the workflow does not align what was uh understood during the UAT. Yes, uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely correct. In the UAT environment, it should be a very dedicated controls. Once it moves to production, that is even be more robust control. Because production environment, that means you can test things that, for example, if you are testing withdrawals and the UAT tester have accounts, they can withdraw the funds. So if that's not controlled properly, UAT can have ultimately can withdraw as much fund from the production of real customer clients into his own personal account if the UAT setup is not a robust enough. So, so you can see how dangerous if the UAT testing is not fully documented, there's no all the trails and what they tested is not aligned to their designs. And if there's a bug, they, they've not been able to fix it. So funds could be uh, misappropriate handle. That's for definitely sure, especially in crypto and, and never mind traditional finance. Uh, so so it's a fair high risk yeah and also uh uh echoing to what robbie previously initially mentioned 
the business contingency risk. And I think uh, in nowadays, uh, most of the advanced uh, or developed countries like, like, like the uh, EU zone and also US and Canada, Singapore, and also Hong Kong, Tokyo, I think they, they will have a very similar framework that uh, uh, I'm, of course, more familiar with the uh, Hong Kong one because I'm based in Hong Kong. And actually, the local Hong Kong regulator, uh, HKMA, has a uh, supervisory policy manual that is focusing on operational resilience, which is called OR2. And actually, of course, it was based on some uh, regulations, related regulations on what uh, resilience based in uh, uh, FCA in the UK and also some of them from, from the EU. And actually, that operational resilience is quite uh, important for, for the banking industry. And I think this kind of framework, although currently uh, in the local regulators, uh, Securities, Futures and Commission, SFC, does not have such a high bar for the requirement for the virtual asset trading platform. But I think it works that every crypto firms uh, around the world should consider this uh, framework, although may not be as the same uh, bar as mentioned in the HKMA SPM OR2. But I think the high level uh, objective or purpose is very important. Basically, the framework uh, is to ensure that uh, the firm will identify their own um, tolerance for disruption. That means, for example, how many hours you accept that your trading platform, for example, are not in service to the customer, to the clients. Because, you know, in the crypto world, we suppose is a 24 times 7 uh, shop for, for the clients to trade the assets. So if you say that, your tolerance for disruption is two hours. Is it too risky for the client? It, it of course, different firm has different appetite, risk appetite for their risk assessment. Yeah, and so once you define the tolerance for disruption, then you will have need to define some uh, risk score. For different kinds of factors you take into in terms of two main objectives that is how an incident or something that will affect the firm's viability that is the first thing an incident or something that will affect the firm's viability that is the first thing and the second thing that will be how that incidents impact your firm will leading to the instability of the 
financial institution sector. So of course, uh, link back to the crypto world, we will, I think we can tweet it to like uh, how it will affect the crypto industry, the, the crypto sector. Okay. Then, yeah, based so, on, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so I guess uh, those, those pointers, but valid for sure anyway to come um, meet the kind of appropriate standard so if, if we move to focus back on this this is the key 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 risk and we talk about key 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 risk we we need to look about the you lock this off right OR2 and actually the OR2 is uh, after we defining the criteria the score for each uh, scenario how it affect your firm's critical business for example you may define it uh, your deposits or withdrawals for both crypto and uh, fiat currency is a very uh, critical operation for your firm. And then the second thing, maybe you can think of uh, trading, the uh, different kind of token swap will be very important to actually to, to the crypto firm. And also you can think of other things like uh, customer services, because whenever there are some problems in the crypto trading platform, you actually need a customer service to answer the questions from the customers, from your institutional customers, so that you can resolve the problem timely, something like that. And so basically that is uh, what we need to consider of course at the after you set up the criteria actually you need to identify uh, nearly all the process within your firm and then based on the scorecard and based on the criteria set up then you arrive a uh, total score for each operation for each services or processes that you will basically uh, identify maybe five to uh, four person. Yeah. So, so that, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And Robbie, do, do you have any? Yeah. I, I, I've got yeah. some, uh, yeah, uh, some, 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 some key actions on, on this. Uh, apologies for, for, for before the, the order interruption. So uh, I guess the final point is just just want to wrap up in in terms of this is the key man risk uh, to mitigate this key man risk we need to put enough resources and making sure there's a, a clear segregation of duties and and also key man risk for um, core leave so that means the person would need to take leave this is very traditional finance to make sure this can get mitigated. Uh, that's for mitigation of key man risks. Uh, Cliff, you you have anything for the final for the audience? Uh, no, no. I, I think I uh, 
some summarize most of the key points. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, so the key moments in terms of the saga of FTX, it's you, you need to have enough uh bandwidth and make making sure the controls and segregation are robust enough, and making sure the previous uh listed those controls that Cliff have shared with with you all, uh, you should take into account. Yeah, I guess uh that's it for for today's episode. Thank you for listening all. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.